always mistrust conventional wisdom, or at the very least hold its feet to the fire. So this episode I want to take a look at four of the more cliched assumptions about Putin and explore how far they're right, but also how far they're wrong, and in that respect, problematic. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. Before looking at those four conventional wisdoms, I do actually also want to pick up on just a few news stories that caught my eye. But even before that, let me just briefly turn into advertisement mode. A couple of uh, public outings I've got. On Monday the 20th of November, if you happen to be in Amsterdam, I'll be at uh, Dabali, where I'll be talking with Piotr Sauer about... Russia in Ukraine, and whatever else he chooses to ask me about. And then on Monday the 4th of December, I will be at Pushkin House in London, where essentially there I will just be as a spear carrier, as Anna Aratunyan talks about her excellent book, Hybrid Warriors. Very well worth picking up if you want to get a sense of the, sort of the complexities of how the whole Donbass conflict started, and particularly about how the Kremlin uses all these various deniable, dubious, grey zone proxies in war. Anyway, so that's 20th of November in Amsterdam, 4th of December in London. So, as I say, there's a few news items I just wanted to pick up. First of all, interestingly, we've had a piece in the Washington Post in which the, it's always in these cases, anonymous sources are claiming that a particular Ukrainian colonel, Colonel Chervinsky, was a crucial figure in essentially organising the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipelines. Now, this is interesting because, well, firstly, it's interesting because it acts as a sort of Rorschach ink block test of people's assumptions. Those same people who were perfectly happy to tout stories about the imminence of a Russian invasion before February of last year, again, based essentially on anonymous sources, are now criticising this particular piece because it depends on anonymous sources. The fact of the matter is that I, I have no idea whether or not Colonel Chervinsky, ex-Colonel Chervinsky rather, um, was behind this. But it, it is interesting that it does demonstrate, I would suggest, firstly, growing tensions in Kyiv, because the, the suggestion is that essentially President Zelensky's people did this in order to point the finger at the military and thus Commander-in-Chief General Zaluzhny. Given the recent spat over Zaluzhny's, frankly, pretty excellent article in The Economist, in which he says that essentially the war has currently reached a stalemate, and Zelensky and his people then slapping back and saying, no, 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 it's not a stalemate. You know, it, it, it does fit into to that pattern. More interesting for me, though, is actually how the Russians have picked up on this. Now, at first, I would have assumed this was manna from heaven for the Kremlin's propagandists. But interestingly, there was a piece in Moskovsky Komsomolets, which was saying, no, you know, clearly this is not true. Clearly, I mean, you know, one, one doesn't often actually get the 
spectacle of Russian propagandists leaping in to defend potentially a Russian, a Ukrainian sabotage commander. But anyway, they were saying, look, clearly this, this could not be the case. Instead, this is actually Ukraine essentially falling on its sword in order to protect the real perpetrators of the attack, who were, of course, the Americans and naturally the Brits. So I can't help but feel that this story, I mean, I think it's an interesting one. We'll have to see how it emerges. And I have no idea if it's true or not. It's worth noting. Um, but nonetheless, it is quite interesting how, in some ways, you know, from the point of view of Russian propagandists, they really can't stop and, 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 and smell the flowers and appreciate a story that they've been given. They, they Even that, they have to say, no, 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 there is a further story behind it. This notion of the world as one where there is always another layer of reality, which is something that we see very strongly with Putin and Patrushev and the rest of that paranoid crew, you know, is clearly one that is much more diffuse. The second story I have to just touch on is this um, dead Putin story, which, much like, um, you know, Frankenstein's monster, may, may be dead but continues to, to, to roam the earth. And it's a couple of bits and pieces that are worth mentioning on this. First of all, Nikolai Patrushev, who, according to the, the, the running story, has basically taken over while Putin's corpse continues to, to sit in a fridge freezer. Well, he gave a, a lengthy address at the Znanya, the Knowledge Society, um, its annual event. And his was essentially a run through all the ways in which actually Russia has faced this ghastly, sustained hostility from the West. And the interesting point is that when he came to talking about Putin, he continued to use the past tense. And therefore, for many, this is a hard. This is actually his hidden obituary. Well, first of all, I am inclined to suggest that some kind of scheming and ruthless figure such as Patrushev would, if need be, if he wanted to actually conceal the fact that, that he currently had Putin stuffed un amongst the frozen peas and ice creams, would actually maybe have used the present tense. I think the past tense, again, having looked at his address in full, just simply as a continuation of the idiom. But, but nonetheless, it doesn't matter because it's all grist to the mill. And it's a mill that is often actually grinding out very sort of dubious stuff. For example, again, this, this essentially all comes from the General SVR, uh, General SVR telegram channel. There was this claim about Patrushev, whom Peskov, who's the Kremlin spokesman, managed to officially announce as the voice of the Kremlin. Well, I thought, well that, that sounds like, like a big deal. So I actually went and looked at what was said. And instead, it was simply about the fact that uh, Patrushev had made some comments about Russian nuclear stance. And people had asked Peskov about it, and Peskov had said, well, look, this is official Kremlin policy, so you can assume that, that Patrushev is expressing Kremlin policy. That is not the same as saying, when Patrushev speaks, you assume he has the voice of the Kremlin. No, it's a very, very specific point about basically saying, yes, he was saying what is government view. But that doesn't matter. The point is, it's a nice line, it sounds good, and how many people are going to be so compulsively nerdish as to go back and look at the, the, the source material? One thing I would say is, we've, we've had from this a claim that Dmitry Medvedev is now on the wagon because he's been told that he'll be taking over from Volodin as Speaker of the State Duma. 
So let's just watch that particular space. Now, again, it's not conclusive one way or the other. But nonetheless, if Medvedev does suddenly become Duma speaker, that, that's interesting. That suggests that actually this, this channel does have some insights. If he doesn't, although I'm sure the channel will find some reason, oh, he came off the wagon and started drinking again or whatever, but nonetheless, if he doesn't, then bear in mind that that might, might be considered evidence of the fact that actually he doesn't know what he's talking about. Next, I was very, very disappointed that uh, Valentin Matvieva, the Speaker of the Upper House, the Federation Council, is now saying that her call for the creation of a Ministry of Happiness, whose job would be to basically ensure that all government policies contribute to the sum total of the happiness of the Russian people, that she said it was a joke. Because I think that would have been really quite charming. And also, I mean, look, it does fit into an issue I'm going to be talking about later more seriously, about actually how Putin and the state clearly are concerned with keeping Russians happy. But also, well, either it would have been a lovely, fluffy idea in a distinctly unfluffy time, or else a truly Orwellian horror ministry. But uh, anyway, as I said, we've been told that's just, just a joke. What doesn't seem to be a joke, and this is the last news story I want to pick up, is I'm sure you have been following with bated breath the goings-on at the first the inaugural Russian Economic Forum in Chelyabinsk. No? Well, allow me to catch you up on one particular element that came out of that, which was the, the presentation of an economic programme for Russia penned by the hawkish economist but also very close to the presidential administration, Sergei Glaziev. And what he is proposing is that Russia should become moral, smart, fair, legal, social and democratic, and also master the functions of a de developmental state. Now, that's quite interesting, because to say that Russia should become these things is, after all, an implicit way to saying Russia is not currently that. Now, I would have no problem in saying that the current Russian state is not moral, smart, fair, legal, social and democratic, and so forth. Um, but that is not by any means the, the, the official line. So this is, in fact, quite a, a scathing indictment of the very system which Glaziev is, is, is very close to the heart. And then Glaziev himself went on to say, without cleansing the state of corruption and the market of organised crime and the arbitrariness of monopolists. That's quite a mouthful. Anyway, without that, it is impossible to build an effective economy and a fair society. So, I mean, this is really quite, quite striking because, you know, if you think about it, without cleansing the state of corruption, well... 23 years Putin has been in charge of that state. There is no way that you can, meaningfully anyway, dissociate that from being a criticism of at least what Putin has allowed to happen on his watch, even if you're not actually going to claim that he's behind it, though of course he is. The market of organised crime, well, I mean, interestingly enough, I'm not quite sure that organised crime itself is really is still a powerful force within the market unless one expands organized crime to to really mean uh, sort of you know corrupt cabals again these these monopolists um you know that he goes on to you know the arbitrariness of monopolists who built these monopolies 
I mean, actually, we've seen clear evidence that the state is perfectly able to break apart monopolies created in the 1990s. Instead, what we have are monopolies that have been created, maintained, preserved and often extended under Putin. So this is really, in its own fairly dry way, and obviously focusing on an economic program rather than anything else, actually a pretty devastating critique of Putinism. And we'll have to wait and see if this goes anywhere. Is is just simply a little sort of you know self-indulgent gathering of people who'll say some things and then it just disappears? But nonetheless, it, it was covered at quite great length, for example, in I was reading this in the newspaper, Nezavisima Gazeta. But it also stresses one of the things that I've been trying to sort of get at is that in the current environment with the massive crackdown on the, the Navalny's, the Karamurzas and such like, meaningful opposition to this regime is going to come from the right. It's going to come from the nationalists. It's going to come from people who in some cases are statists who feel that the government is too weak and in other cases are people believers in the fact that the government is just simply ineffective, inefficient, incapable of bringing Russia to, to the level it needs to be, which seems to be Glazyev's line. So I think that's something that we need to watch, not look for, the, shall we say, the old opposition, which is currently sort of languishing or in exile, and instead look at the slowly emerging new opposition, which, whether we're talking about people like Strelkov, still awaiting his uh, court date for on his extremism trial, or people like Glaziev, who are real insiders, no question. These are people who actually have certain amounts of, of traction within the system. They have backers, they have supporters, they have pipelines in. They are going to know what's going on. If these people really start to get serious, and that's a big if, but that's a much bigger problem, I would suggest, for the regime than even 100,000 people in Balotnaya Square. So watch this space. Anyway, let's move now on to the conventional wisdoms. And the first one I want to look at is this notion that Putin knows what he wants and it doesn't change. This idea that he has an idée fixe of what he wants for Russia, what he wants for himself, what he wants in Ukraine and such like. And that essentially, despite the occasional tactical shift back and forth, they haven't changed over time. They will not change. And in that respect... If there isn't a strategy, which is like kind of a, a roadmap that how you get from here to there, there is nonetheless a very clear and above all immutable end point. And my answer is, frustratingly enough, yes and no. Look, he absolutely clearly has a general idea of what he wants for himself and what he wants for Russia. And that has been pretty consistent and frankly predates his time in the presidency. If you look at his speeches from 1999, you get, for example, a sense of this idea of a Russia that is sovereign, able to operate without being at all dependent on or constrained by other powers and such like. This is not a man who's trying to recreate the Tsarist Empire. This is not a man who's trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Instead, though, you know, he, he does have a certain sense of what's what. But precisely, it always is going to be modified by circumstance and modified by essentially plausibility. Because what does he want more than anything else, which is clearly survival? Survival in a physical sense, but also in terms of you know, his resources, protecting his closest uh, cronies and the like. And if we look at, for example, what he wants for Ukraine, I think this is, provides a really clear example of this. Now, overall, he wants control over Ukraine. Yeah, of course. But 
actually, what does that really mean? How is that to be manifest? Does control mean actually having to have a basically a proxy in 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 controlling Kiev? Is that still something that that, that is feasible, or can just can he hope for? bits of Ukraine and a veto over some elements like joining NATO or whatever, it all varies. And this reminds me of uh, sort of a general point that I think we, we have to bear in mind. On the one hand, it's important to have the humility to accept when we got it wrong. I mean, as I said, I, I mentioned this in the past, until about a week before the invasion, I thought it was only about a 40% likelihood that Putin would invade because it didn't make sense to me. Still doesn't make sense, but nonetheless, we, we now know why, you know, the, the essentially the deeply inaccurate assumptions on which Putin was basing policy. But the other thing is, yes, we can have humility, but on the other hand, there's no need necessarily to have too much in the way of self-flagellation. Because, after all, we're not the only people who didn't really know what he was after. And this, this is, came from a sort of question I was asked at, at an event last week in which someone said, you know, how, how did we get it wrong? And my thought is, at first, look, we should be basically giving ourselves a break. Think back to that fateful Security Council meeting that was held just before the invasion, at which you had the mighty figures within Putin's court stuttering and stammering and hedging their bets, desperately trying to say the right thing. It's worth noting, after all, that even, even Patrushev actually... He advocated not moving soon, but continuing to see what they could get diplomatically out of Ukraine and the West. But anyway, it's clear that even they had no idea what Putin really wanted them to say and were sort of stumbling around and trying to either influence him, people like Kozak, who clearly were trying to very much push a let's not invade right now line, or just simply guess what he would want, what he wanted. And this was part of the problem for poor Narishkin, the head of foreign intelligence, who got so sort of viciously slapped down by Putin at that meeting that it was just too obvious the extent to which he was kind of trying to just feel his way towards telling the boss what he wanted. So even they, a week before the invasion, didn't know. And likewise, look, why were the Ukrainians so resistant to the warnings they were getting from the West? Well, I say the West, primarily the UK and the US about the imminence of a Russian invasion. In part, that was precisely because they had penetrated and were listening in to the communications of the Russian forces arrayed around their border. And until about 72 hours before the actual invasion, what they were hearing from the chatter between generals and colonels and so forth was that they, they themselves did not believe that they were about to be sent into Ukraine. They thought this was just some grand psychological warfare operation. And so the Ukrainians reckoned, well, no, actually, then clearly nothing is about to happen because they, they didn't assume that Putin would be, frankly, stupid enough to think that in the course of three days you can knock together an, an invasion which is going to sort of basically take over a neighbouring country of that scale. So the thing is, there's no evidence, frankly, that even the people who know Putin best know what he wants. And that is, given the degree to which Putin's head is a black box until some someday someone can slice it open to get to his head, or that some, again, remember the degree to which so many of the Russians still believe in bizarre parapsychological powers, uh, wander into his dreams and find out what he's thinking. 
We should recognise that while Putin has a broad sense of what he wants, it does change. It is secondary to the, the needs of the moment. And often it will be that what he wants is the best he thinks he can get at that moment. And this is the problem for the negotiations with, with Ukraine. Because actually, from Putin's point of view, the irony is that the very point at which any suggestion of negotiations is made is the point at which he thinks, aha, they're doing so because they're feeling weak and therefore I can actually push for more. And probably his notion of what he wants will therefore you know, ratchet up a level or two. But of course, and I'll, I'll talk about deal making with Putin later, at present there is absolutely no scope for any such negotiations. Okay, so that was conventional wisdom number one. Conventional wisdom number two is that Putin doesn't have to worry about public opinion. The idea is, look, he's an autocrat, a vicious, brutal police state. Why does he need to care? Well, for me, this one is completely wrong. Absolutely, this is not a democracy by any means. But nonetheless, even authoritarian regimes need to worry about what their population are thinking if for no other reason than before the population pick up their pitchforks and start to storm the castle. If Putin really didn't care about public opinion, why go through the extremely expensive distraction that is an election next year? And we have every evidence to suggest that, that he is. If Putin doesn't care about public opinion, why maintain this massive propaganda machine? Why continue just to flat-out lie about what's happening in the special military operation and on pretty much every other aspect of policy if you don't care what people think? It's precisely because you, propaganda is in some ways the, the way of preempting the circumstances in which you're going to have to send out your guys with, with truncheons and water cannon. And come to think of it, those guys with truncheons and water cannon, of course you have to care about them. They are part of the public. And all elements of the state need to also be co-opted. If Putin didn't care about public opinion, why does the FSO, the Federal Protection Service, the sort of Praetorian Guard of the regime, maintain such a massive, precisely, public opinion surveying mechanism? Why does it actually probably have the most extensive polling institutions in the whole country? The fact of the matter is, I would suggest that Putin is actually obsessed about public opinion. First of all, for, as I say, the, the entirely practical reasons of the fact that he doesn't want to you know, see his regime swept away by, by revolution, and remember... That although I, I don't actually believe the stories that Putin is obsessed by the death of Colonel Gaddafi and sort of keeps watching the footage and such like, I do think that actually Putin is obsessed by his own experiences, having faced not one but two authoritarian regimes collapse around him, first East Germany and then the, the Soviet Union. I think he's very well aware of the practical importance of not letting your people either A, think that you're weak or b or and or b think that in fact your interests are not theirs and hence there is a great effort to try and convince the population both that the regime is strong and that's one of the reasons for the elections to kind of provide that degree of fake legitimacy but also to convince people that in fact the regime cares about them and is doing its best by them and that's often where the propaganda fits in
And all of this is demonstrated by the fact that it's clear that concerns about public opinion affect, sometimes even absolutely shape, policy. Whether it's in terms of the the reluctance that Putin had to launch a mobilization wave and the fact that uh, another mobilization wave, certainly for the foreseeable future, has essentially been ruled out. Now, in part, that's because actually they've managed to recruit more volunteers than they had expected. But it's also because of a clear awareness of just how disruptive and unpopular the first mobilization wave was. But more more generally, one can see it in, for example, the fact that from the 1st of January, the minimum wage is increasing by a whopping 18.5%. And isn't it funny that now that we're in the run-up to an election, all of a sudden a whole variety of different social groups are getting all kinds of different sweeteners, whether it's in terms of pensioners, whether it's in terms of the, of the shrinking body of the unemployed. Remember, this is an economy which is running very hot at the moment, and there's actually quite low unemployment. Um, But time and time again, it is clear that the degree to which public opinion is a significant, sometimes even dominant factor in politics, comes to light. And so, yes, Putin doesn't have to worry about being swept out of power in an election, But on the other hand, for example, he does have to worry about the possibility that a patently rigged election actually leads to to popular protest, or at the very least the delegitimation of his regime. So, yes, authoritarians do care about what their people think. Authoritarians, in some ways, have to be especially worried about what their people think. Think about it. If you're a democratic politician, the worst you face is being defeated in an election. And then, yes, you you may lose your position as a member of parliament or whatever, but then you can go and write your memoirs and go and do punditry and make lots of money, whether it's on the talk circuit or becoming a director of half a dozen different corrupt organisations. Sorry, I meant uh, private organisations. You know, but that's it. No one is expecting that you're likely to end up in a war crimes tribunal in The Hague or hanging from a lamppost on Tverskaya or whatever. Actually, authoritarians have all the more reason to worry about public opinion. Now let's take a break and let me tackle my last two conventional wisdoms. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Okay, so the third of the various conventional wisdoms that I want to... I mean, in part challenge, but in part just simply add a bit of nuance to, is this notion essentially that Putin needs the war, that he's now in a position in which actually this is entirely politically useful and so much so that he can't possibly disengage from the war for fear of the backlash this would have, that then it would open up questions as to whether it was worth it. And there is a good point there, actually. He ultimately will have to have something that he can spin as a victory, even if he does have a lot of flexibility as to what that means is because he'll be saying, oh, it's not just against Ukraine, it's about the whole Western alliance. But also a sense that 
the war has now created its own economic dynamism, or dynamic rather, so that actually the end of the war would also lead to economic dislocation and, and the like, which also has, again, an impact on the popularity, the legitimacy of the system. Now, with all of these things, I think, the only, again, the honest answer is yes and no. On the one hand, the war absolutely has become a very useful organising principle for the regime, a way of essentially drawing lines, of saying, are you a patriot or are you a traitor? There is no middle ground. But also a way of generating a kind of heroic narrative, which I think is really important in trying to mobilise and bring together a country and legitimise a regime. That sense of we're all in this together, even if you happen to be an impoverished Buryat factory worker and I am a ludicrously rich kleptocrat. But nonetheless, we're all in this struggle and it gives some kind of purpose to life. That, that does matter. It's one of those very intangible elements. But a successful political leader or a successful political regime is often able to precisely offer something more than just a technocratic legitimation of we manage the economy pretty well and your lives are okay. Particularly when you're not managing the economy particularly well from the point of view of ordinary Russians, well, it's good to have something more. But that said, yes, it is important to have war as this kind of you know, heroic national mission. But the point is, he can have that without necessarily needing to have the shooting war in Ukraine. In many ways, it's the shooting war that creates the problems. It means, you know, again, a, a need to basically gear the entire economy towards defence production, a need to spend a massive share of your budget on, on the military, people coming home in body bags, people being afraid of the potential for a new mobilisation, all of those sorts of things. These are the negatives of the, I say, kinetic war in Ukraine. But as I say, he can have the grand narrative of a mission without necessarily needing that. Because after all, this has been, as I mentioned already, reframed as a an existential, but nonetheless an existential political war with the West. We can go back to, for example, Patrushev's words last year, in which he asserted that Washington has tried to force Russia to give up its sovereignty, its self-consciousness, its culture, its independent and foreign and domestic policy. Well, let me just very briefly unpick that. I mean, it's, it's sovereignty. That sense that Russia's interests, Russia's core national interests are at stake. Now, again, it seems ironic at a time when actually Russia has so dramatically infringed on Ukrainian sovereignty as to invade it. But nonetheless, the way that it is framed by the Kremlin is precisely that it, actually this was necessary in order to defend Russia's own core national interests. It's self-consciousness. In other words, its sense of itself as having a unique cultural identity. There is this constant notion that the West is trying to bombard Russia with propaganda and pressure to make it essentially become homogenised into this increasingly decadent Western cultural norms and all this nonsense about all the God knows how many different genders there are meant to be and the whole notion of wokeness as some kind of cultural weapon directed against the Russian people. So, again, 
that's something that is, is dramatic, it's grand, we're fighting to basically remain Russians, hence also the our culture. But at the same time, it doesn't actually require anyone to be killed on the battlefield. And finally, an independent foreign and domestic policy. Again, this notion that this is essentially an anti-imperialist war. This is a war being fought such that Russia does not have to bend the knee and do whatever the sort of the hegemonic Anglo-Saxon-led world order tells it to do. Now, this is all 90% nonsense, of course. But the point is, that nonetheless, it, it can be mobilised, I would suggest, to provide Putin with the war he needs. And I, I hesitate to just call it a culture war, but nonetheless, you know, essentially a, a political struggle that can be maintained independent of what actually happens in, in Ukraine itself. So, you know, just as in terms of the economy, if the current situation goes on long enough, basically the economy will probably be pretty much locked in military mode. In other words, you know, heavily state-controlled, almost Soviet-style with it without the Marxism-Leninism. But likewise, society and the political system can get locked into this, this heroic war-fighting model without actually needing to, to have to be feeding the battlefield. So this is why I say yes and no. Putin needs a war, but it doesn't necessarily mean the shooting war in Ukraine. And that neatly leads me on to the fourth point, which is you can't make a deal with Putin. You can't trust Putin. And yet again, the unsatisfying yes and no answer. Look, of course, Putin has broken agreements and understandings on a serial nature, one after the other, with, with catastrophic implications for not just Russia, but also its neighbours. And we certainly can't trust him. Putin is, and you heard it here first, Putin is not a nice chap. Putin is not a man who is in any way going to actually put commitments that he's made over his interests. But the point is that deals are often not based on blind trust. In fact, no, deals are almost invariably not based on blind trust because the very people with whom you have to negotiate tend to be the people in, with whom you are in contestation. Instead, deals are then built with, with safeguards. If X happens, then we will do Y. They're often staged. We will perhaps, I'm just picking an example at random, you know, lift these particular sanctions the moment all of your troops are out of occupied Donbass, for example. So in other words, it's not that you're having to trust that he's going to pull his troops out. You are having waiting to observe that he has done so. You'll then bring in safeguards, which in that particular case would presumably be that Ukrainian forces would then move up to the border and secure the liberated territories. And then you move on to the next thing. There are penalties for failure. And the idea is that the penalties ought to be sufficiently severe that Putin has a reason to uh, go along with, with what he agreed. So, look... Of course you can't trust Putin, or indeed the, the whole regime around him. I mean, I think this is one of the problems, that until we have some kind of 
lengthy period of rapprochement, and I'm thinking very much of what happened in the 1980s, and you know, think of the mistrust that was initially there about Gorbachev. That sense that, no, this is all a ruse, that in fact he is not serious in his commitments to trying to reform the Soviet Union, but above all trying to improve relations between the Soviet Union and the West. You know, it took years and it took actual concrete movement on the ground to change that. So, you know, we frankly are not going to be in a position in which we are trusting Russia for a long time. But just as it was possible to make deals with the Soviet Union, even while it was being assailed as an empire of evil, so too in this case. This is not an excuse not to talk to the Russians. When, and I really would want to stress that when, the time is right. And at the moment, the time is not right. And in that respect, I suppose I want to just pick up once again on, on another news item. We, we had the recent one claiming that the West, particularly the United States, was putting pressure on Kyiv to negotiate with the Russians and make, make a deal. Now, I think, and I could be entirely wrong, and if anyone who's listening has, has, has news for the, to the contrary, please do tell me. But my sense is not actually that Washington honestly thinks that Kyiv could, would or should be opening negotiations at this stage. Of course not. I think it's more an attempt to, in a way, just try and lay down a marker to say that you will have to talk at some point, And that may involve concessions, compromises, depending on what the situation is politically, economically and on the battlefield. And in particular, that there are certain requirements that so far have been built into the Ukrainian notion of what uh, an acceptable end state would be, such as not just return of every single piece of occupied territory, including Crimea, which you know, might, might need to have an asterisk on it, let's be honest, but also things like, again, war crimes tribunals for those people who have perpetrated this war. That last is just not going to happen. And if Ukraine is absolutely determined to say that unless that happens, there can be no peace, that is essentially saying there is going to be no peace. So as far as I'm concerned, I think what we're seeing at the moment is not in any way pressure about talks. It's about trying to begin to lay down some sense of what are going to be the realistic parameters for talks at some point in the future. When Russia is hurting enough and I suspect that's going to have to be the result of further advances on the battlefield, which may take place in the coming year. Or, I mean, some people are already actually thinking of 2024 as essentially a building year for 2025 to be the year in which the real military successes are had. But, you know, whenever it happens, it's a question of just simply being realistic about it. One can make a deal with Putin. It is clearly a deal which will have to be very carefully framed. It is a deal in which one can expect, as usual, the Russians to be exceedingly bullish. I mean, their, their, their style of negotiation is, is very much a forceful one. And it's a deal which, you know, even while you're grasping the pen to sign with one hand, you should have the other hand on your holstered pistol, because it, it will need to be one that actually is backed with, with serious guarantees. And this is, I think, where things like NATO membership and the like all, all come in. To say you can't make a deal with Putin is, in effect, to say this war in Ukraine and this wider war, this economic and political war between the West and Russia, will continue so long as Putin is in the Kremlin. That may happen, but I don't think we need to be, or should be, trying to kind of lock ourselves into that as, in effect, a policy decision. So, 
Final point, why, why did I bother attacking these four pieces of conventional wisdom? Well, the answer is, I think in the last month in particular, I've had a, an especially dense program of meetings, um, attendance at various sort of governmenty workshops and the like. And the thing that has struck me was actually how often these kinds of notions have been advanced as if they were demonstrable, scientifically proven facts. Now, you can absolutely disagree with me on my take on all or any of these. But what I would say is we need to appreciate that, in fact, we are dealing with human beings, however flawed, unpleasant and doomed for hell they are, who will have changing opinions, will have multiple opinions, will disagree with themselves behind closed doors largely, who are afraid, and I think that's one of the key things we have to remember, the degree to which actually the Russian leadership is motivated by fear. In some ways, it's almost the more that they puff themselves up like small endangered animals to look as formidable as possible, the more they rely on overblown rhetoric and the sort of most crass sabre-rattling about nuclear weapons or whatever else, the more they're actually demonstrating the degree to which they're actually scared about the situation they find themselves in. And in those circumstances, it's very difficult to deal with them. We shouldn't actually give them a pass or any kind of special treatment because they are lashing out out of fear. But nonetheless, I think we have to appreciate the situation that there, there is going to be at some point in the future some kind of scope for negotiations, which may or may not succeed. You know, it could be, as I say, that we are locked into this pretty hot Cold War for quite some time. But if we decide now that it is impossible, if we decide now that Putin has a fixed objective from which he will not deviate, that Putin is entirely unconcerned about public opinion, that Putin is morally and politically committed to a constant a hot war, with Ukraine and the West, and that it is impossible to make a deal with Putin, then these are four self-fulfilling prophecies. And as far as possible, I don't believe in them. Thanks very much. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>